Back in the mid to late 90s, music supervision was just really starting to form. And there were probably maybe eight to 10 music supervisors really in the role. And it wasn't fully defined as what it is today. In fact, the word sync didn't really exist. There weren't really sync departments, not in the slang form that it's used today where I landed a sync or I want to get do a sync license. Back then, the labels and publishers didn't really recognize what a big market it was and how much money there was to be made. Today, we're going to be talking with Joel C. High, who's an expert music supervisor. He's worked with directors like Mario Van Peebles, Bill Paxton, Rob Zombie, Tyler Perry. Amazing resume and a ton of insight today. I'm super excited. Let's dive in. Welcome to the License Your Music Podcast, where I'm here to help give you all the tools you need to license your music for film, TV, ads, trailers, and more so that you can earn passive income and obtain creative freedom. I'm your host, Jody Friedman. Thanks for spending some of your time with me today. If you haven't been by our site at licenseyourmusic.com, please come by. And if you're looking to actually break into music licensing, I put together this free ebook called How to Get Your Music Heard by Music Supervisors. It's completely free. It's a five-step guide where I put together five steps for you to follow. So go ahead, download that, follow those steps, and start getting heard now. Joel C. High is a music supervisor and producer who has worked on over 150 films, television projects, and video games, and is also a chief executive for a supervision production and events company he co-founded in 2006. Over the last two decades, he created and supervised the music departments for two of the leading independent studios in the industry, Trimark Pictures and Lionsgate Entertainment. Joel has served as co-producer on several music-intensive films, including three with Mario Van Peebles. In addition to his acclaimed supervision work in motion pictures, TV, and video games, working with directors such as Tyler Perry, Mark Forster, Peter Bogdanovich, Don Roos, Roger Avery, James Foley, Bill Paxton, Billy Ray, Mario Van Peebles, Dwayne Adler, and Rob Zombie. Rob Zombie, one of my favorites. He is an eight-time nominee as Outstanding Music Supervisor of the Year, most recently winning for the film Of Mind and Music and the Warren G documentary G-Funk. He is a founder and board member and current president of the Guild of Music Supervisors, which we'll be talking about today, and has previously served on the board for the California Copyright Conference. Joel currently is the principal executive at Creative Control Entertainment, a multifaceted music supervision consultation, live event, and production company with offices in LA and New Orleans, and diverse clients ranging from independent studios and national brands to international governments. So you've got an office in New Orleans too, yeah? Yeah, it's a it's an, uh, an amazing recording studio down there, right on Esplanade and, and Broad. Um, is that where you're from? Uh, no, I'm from LA originally, but uh, I'd, I'd been working in, in New Orleans for years and years. We, uh, When I was the head of music over at Trimark and then Lionsgate, we did a lot of uh, Louisiana uh, productions using the tax incentives. And so we went down there a lot um, for work and I just fell in love with the place. And then uh, mm-hmm. um, I started my company there after Katrina um, because um, literally it was because the Recording Academy you know, went and got out their checkbook and wrote a million dollar check to the the guy who's kind of on the ground there, a guy named Reed Wick, and said, whatever they need, just 
buy musicians their instruments back, you know, pay for healthcare, whatever you need. And I was like, that's so freaking amazing. But I'm like, if they don't have a reason to work and stay in the city, there's no reason for them to come back. So I started um, doing everything I could to bring other music supervisors to New Orleans to hire musicians um, down there to give them a reason to move back to the city and the state. And, uh, you know, one of my first things was on a Tyler Perry movie called uh, what was it? Family reunion um, that we recorded the score. Tyler's originally from New Orleans. And so we did the score there in, in December and January of uh, 2005, 2006. So right after Katrina and uh, we did it in Piety Street in the Bywater and they, they basically had electricity, but no running water, no internet. Um, and we, you know, had to go out and find the, the Louisiana um, Symphonic Orchestra um, when they were, they were in Houston, they were in Atlanta, they were everywhere and get them to come back to record this. And it was just, so we, we did that. And I was like, this, I'm not leaving. So I've had my, uh, you know, I've been domiciled there since then at uh, Esplanade Studios is where I've got my, my office down there. It's almost like another world there, huh? Like um, a music centric, just art centric place from what I understand. Yeah, it's amazing. There is no other place like it. Wow. Can you share with us some of the early parts of your journey, Joel, um, going back to when you were starting out, what inspired you to get into music supervision? Um, I grew up here in Los Angeles and uh, I was a kind of punk rock kid and and wanted to get into filmmaking more than anything else. And and uh, so I started working on, you know, music videos for, for different people out here and started working at Atlantic Records um, in their video department. Again, I wanted to be in filmmaking. Um, and was doing everything I possibly could to to learn all of the positions. I was in the camera department. I was in the assistant director. I, you know, working on films and working on television series to kind of learn everything there was about filmmaking. And part of it, I got a job. I was offered a job at uh, Primark Pictures, actually, as the assistant to the head of production there. And, you know, something I did not want to do, which was, you know, have an office job. Um, but she convinced me, we really clicked and she said, look, I'll, I'll give you the opportunity. There's, it's, it pays crap, but I'll let you sit in every single meeting for every department if you want to keep learning and, you know, kind of learn how the studio side thing works. And so we made that deal and I started sitting in all the meetings and found out there was a music department and uh, was kind of uh, pushed into, you know, getting into the music. I still wanted to be in production, but um, because there wasn't much room to grow in production there. And my boss said, look, I can't promote you in production, but how about you try music? And I was like, Ugh, I don't want to do that for a living. No. So, uh, yeah. So I went into the music department and within about a year or so, I was the head of music for Trimark. So it was a pretty, pretty steep learning curve. And uh, this was this was back in... 96 97 and uh, there was only a few dozen people who were calling themselves music supervisors at that time so it was a a, a really early early going of, of the industry that you see now being that the industry wasn't as developed i suppose as it is now i mean you it sounds like you were a a pioneer of that essentially of what we what the music supervision industry is today well, so can you talk a little bit about that and how that developed and Sure. Most of the deals, yeah, most of the deals I made was were via fax. So that was that. <laughs> there was a, literally I, when I was starting in the production department, it was they didn't have necessarily the same kind of 
cut and paste, if you can re- recall back in that, it was uh, cut and paste was a, an exotic feature. So we would get contracts that my boss, who was also, you know, mother was also uh, head of uh, business affairs, would have me um, retype all of the contracts um, in the computer in a word processor kind of a thing. Wow. And, you know, stealing paragraphs from other contracts to write them to there and do manual changes in contracts and would have me, you know, basically um, would quiz me on why they were making the changes. And, and uh, you know, I barely knew how to use a telephone, let alone a computer and uh, and got a real kind of hardcore lesson on on contract drafting. And it was great. It was it totally changed the way I think about music and about intellectual property and, uh, and, and how to do this. So, you know, I base, you know, by the time I took over the, the music department for, for Trimark, I was writing all of their contracts and uh, yeah. And it was a very, you know, very different world. We were making it up as we go. This was, you know, just after they had, you know, come through, you know, putting all of you know, movies on DVDs was an exotic thing. And, you know, and, and negotiating for like, you know, if you put music in the menu page, that that was a separate negotiation and people are like, but it's part of the movie. Why do I, and it was, it was literally, we were making this stuff on the fly. So it was very different. And it was, it was the time when um, even at the labels and the publishers, they didn't have, you know, they didn't have big sync departments. There wasn't even a word like that. It wasn't called the sync departments. Like at Warner, it was like, Warner special products kind of a thing. And it was, they, that was the group that was, you know, doing things like, yeah, like they didn't know what it was. So if, if somebody wanted to use a song in a, on a, a, a ride at Disneyland or something that would go under special products. Or if they had like a, a doll that would play a song, they'd put that in there. And then sometimes they'd get some clearance requests from film and television that would go into the special products kind of thing. Cause it wasn't seen as like the big revenue source or that it was then. So it was always kind of the backwater. Yeah. And it took a while for them to realize that <laughs> there was a lot of money to be made. It's interesting. You mentioned that there's, uh, you know, these old, I say older programs. I was born in eighties. So it's, you know, I grew up in the nineties, but you know, they're all, they're older programs relative to today. And that was pre-internet even, you know, internet was just coming around 91, 92. So were these projects not getting internet rights and then did they have to go back later? Oh Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It was it was one of my, you know, big um, pushes there was that we would get, you know, like a, uh, a movie or a television show, they'd want to save money and not get, you know, any kind of future media rights. Um, you know, it, it was a lot of it was in television where, you know, it was it's it's kind of like legend now that they had these big shows like uh, Dawson's Creek and, and Ally McBeal that were coming out. The music played such a big role. But they would only clear for like North America for 10 years television. And then they would kind of maybe think about doing something like, like who wants to watch a video of Ally McBeal or something like that, you know, or Dawson's Creek. And then people started realizing that people would rewatch and rewatch like episodes of the OC on DVD and they could sell these, these, um, these things, but then they couldn't go back to, um, to put them on DVD because they wouldn't have the rights to do it. So a lot of times they started putting um, alternative music in these episodes. And so they would have to just find really cheap music and put it into the episode of the TV show so they could release it on DVD, not even thinking that somebody's going to be able to watch it online someday. You know, it was like, you know, that was pie in the sky. You could barely see a photo online, you know, let alone watch an actual TV show. So they didn't um, get those rights. And because 
I think that I had the advantage of because I was totally, totally green in this and didn't have any training other than on the job training that I didn't want to have to continually renegotiate. My team was basically me and an assistant and no lawyer unless we get it. So I wanted to clear everything for all media now known or hereafter devised, whether it was for a TV show or a movie or whatever. Yeah. I would just, if I, they wouldn't clear it for that, I wouldn't use it because I didn't want to have to do the, do the job twice. So, right. You know, we talk about it a lot with our, uh, our, our students and our the people in our Facebook group about thinking, thinking about your, your art, your songs, your masters as a piece of intellectual property, because it, it, it is a business. And, um, part of what we're talking about today is is just that. And as a supervisor, your job is to secure the rights for that intellectual property for the project. So I want I challenge you all to think about that. And, you know, it, it's kind of I think it's it's interesting because as a creator, as an artist, it's there's always that push and pull between creating art for art's sake and then thinking of it like, you know, a business to make money. And it's there's a lot of times they they uh, butt heads, the two concepts. What would you say an artist, songwriter, composer needs to do to be heard by a music supervisor? And let, let me add to that, that a big challenge that people in our group face is they'll actually reach out through LinkedIn or reach out through IMDB and connect and do take all the proper steps. But there's still a lot of frustration that they're just not, they're pitching to a black hole. What would you recommend for artists to do? Um, well, it is a black hole. If you're, if you're going into it blind, I mean, you know, there's, you know, so many people who are making music that um, it's really hard to get heard. You know, it, it helps if you have somebody who's representing you, um, who's a kind of a trusted source, um, you know, whether it's a label or a publisher or somebody who's just a pitching agent that helps kind of elevate, you know, you and get access to, to music supervisors. Um, but if you don't have that, um, you know, I think that, that uh, Jody was saying, you know, it's, it is a business, you know, you're making an art, but you, if you want to also make a living at it, you have to treat it like a business. And that includes, you know, um, making sure that your product is, is good. Um, and that's the, the first thing for an artist has to do is to make sure that they're making amazing music. Secondly, they have to kind of do their research and know what the target audience is. So if you're, if you think that, you know, your music would be great for a TV show, or anything like that, you know, do the research, find out who the supervisor is for that specific show and show when you contact somebody, a lot of times you can find their contact information in IMDb Pro or somewhere like that. Contact them and show that, you know, you at least know what you're talking about and you know their work and that they use these songs in other episodes of this same show and that you feel like, you know, your music has a lot of similarities and you'd love it if they gave a listen to it. Nine times out of 10 or... 99 times out of 100, you'll, you won't get listened to. But you know what? Um, if you don't send the email, then there's a 100% chance you're not going to get listened to. So in fact, I spend, you know, my mornings, I spend, uh, literally, I get, uh, I, I go through the all the emails that I've got. Most of them are cold emails, and they haven't done any research. They just go on, on like MailChimp and hit, you know, music supervisor group, send and they send it out to everybody. And then I spend my morning going, mm, delete, 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 delete. And for, for like a good hour every morning, just going through all the emails that have come in over the night and uh, just deleting most of them. So, cause it, there's, there's no indication that they give a shit about what I'm doing. So I 
reciprocate. Right, right. And that's that's another thing we preach is to be of service to supervisors. And instead of asking what what can you do for me? How can I be of service? Ask yourself how you can help the supervisor and do the research, work backwards from there. Fantastic advice, Joel, and great insight. Um, what would you say is most important in terms of finding the right piece of music for a project? How do you judge the work? What's the first thing you listen to or listen for? Well, I mean, the, the act of actually getting down to actually listen to something it has got to go through a lot of stages first. So, you know, for me to actually sit down and listen to something, you know, it's got to have a bunch of criteria. Like it usually has to come from somebody I know um, because I, I don't want to have to deal with if somebody's cold send it to me and I don't uh, I don't want to spend the time to listen to it and pitch it, especially to pitch it to a creative person I work with. If uh, there is no real way that it's going to get cleared because somebody hasn't done their research or hasn't done enough on the business side of back end to make sure that all the rights are secure. It's a one stop, that there's no co-writers who are going to be a problem, that there's no samples and that kind of stuff. So I have to go through all of those processes to, before I'll even bother to listen to something. And if something seems like they somebody sends me something and they have done their research, know what I'm working on and kind of know my taste in a way. And, and um, then I'm going to go ahead and listen to it. Um, and I listen to things, you know, unfortunately, like I listen to music constantly during the day, but that's mostly just because I love it. But uh, when I'm professionally listening to things, it's similar to how I go through emails, which is I will <laughs> look at the songs. I'll hit it. If it's on disco or some sort of playlist, I don't listen to anything that anybody has just emailed me as a file. I'll go through playlists, I'll download stuff and, and, you know, later go through my inbox to listen to stuff, but I'll listen to it. And if it sounds tonally like what I want, just in the very beginning, then I'll be like, okay, let's listen a little bit further. Sometimes I'll scrub through the waveform to look for where the chorus is, listen for the chorus, scrub through to see what the bridge might sound like, um, make sure that the tempo and the mood and all that kind of stuff sounds good. And then I'll dump it into a folder that of stuff that I'll listen to again later. So I listen very quickly. And if it doesn't hit like, you know, right off the bat, that it doesn't sound like it's professionally recorded for one. If it doesn't feel like the right thing for what I'm listening for, if the mood's wrong, tempo, all that kind of stuff. If it doesn't feel right in the first, you know, few notes, then I move on to the next because I have to listen to a shit ton of music for uh, finding the right songs. You mentioned you just listen to music for fun. I wish I did more of that. <laughs> When you're doing that, do you ever like anything you hear on Spotify or Amazon, however you listen, do you ever like put that in a folder and say, oh, that'd be oh, good yeah, for constantly, me. constantly. I make I make playlists on on their public playlists of, of stuff that I'm listening to. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. I'm going to save that for later. Cool. And I'll make I make public playlists on Spotify and every month I publish stuff that I've liked on my playlist and I publish that and I've got a running playlist as well of, of stuff that, that, uh, is, that I update every week or so of things that I really like. What is your taste, Joe? I see Kings of Leon and the Stooges and you mentioned punk rock. Um, yeah, it goes all over the place. I mean, like I, I'll tell you what I was just listening to was, uh, uh, Yamatanka Sonic Titan, um, okay. out of, uh, out of Toronto, um, who are awesome. Cool. Um, but I listen to all sorts of, re I listen for mostly stuff that's, uh, that's kind of out there a little bit stuff. That's not usual. Something that is like it's somebody has, is coming at it from an interesting angle. Yeah. Cool. 
Uh, all right, best music decision you've made could be a placement you're proud of, could be something personal, uh, anything you want to share. One of the best music decisions you made. Oh God, um, best music decision I made. Um, could be best, project related. Yeah, yeah. You know, the best music decisions I make. Usually, uh, one of the things that I love to do is, you know, not so much the finding songs that already exist, but helping create them for the projects I work on, you know, hiring a fantastic composer and working with the right uh, composer is like some of the best decisions and like sticking by somebody who may not have, I just did a movie called Echo Boomers. um, That was a, you know, going to be like, you know, kind of a a big movie and we finished it. And uh, they were looking at all sorts of composers uh, for this, some big people who are interested in being involved. And, uh, and I pushed for Dara Taylor, who this was her first big credit because I knew she would kill it and she absolutely did. So, you know, finding the right people that you, you just know are going to really deliver. Um, those are the decisions I like the best. I'm, um, you know, things like um, we had uh, for a movie that I did called the uh, acrimony for Tyler Perry. There was a, a big song in the end. It was all Nina Simone. So we used all Nina Simone recordings through the entire movie. It was something like 27 Nina Simone songs and it was brutal clearance, but the final song, it comes at the end of the movie and it's this big kind of uh, dramatic thing with this woman, uh, Taraji Hansen, is walking through this boat with an axe dressed in a bloody wedding gown looking for her ex-husband kind of a thing. And uh, we tried to clear Nimiki uh, Chapa, uh, um, uh, Nina Simone's version of that. And the estate who represents Jacques Brel um, denied us because it was too violent. And so, you know, Tyler absolutely wanted it. Um, but I said, why don't we find one of the songs that we may have used before and flip it and do a different version. And so I, you know, worked with him and we, I, uh, decided to do, um, I know what it feels like. I wish I knew what it feel like to be free. Um, which is kind of an up-tempo number when Nina Simone did it. And we did it like a dirge and, and I got Andrew Day to sing the song. Um, and we recorded, actually we recorded in uh, New Orleans um, with the orchestra down there. And it was fantastic. And, you know, we couldn't get the song that Tyler really, really wanted, but I think we did something even cooler and more interesting by kind of pivoting and, and making something new. Yeah. Love that story. Um, was there ever a time you wanted to just throw in the towel call it quits. Can you take us to that, that moment? Anything that, yeah. No, the, uh, my, in fact, my company, one of we have a few mottos in my company. One of them is it's, uh, it's only a no until it's a yes. Um, that's one of our negotiating uh, things and we have to figure out the way to get it to be. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I almost never wanted to throw in the towel necessarily. You know, it's, it's like, like with the, uh, the Jacques Brel song, we, we, you know, couldn't, I couldn't convince an estate to go against the, the, the request of the, uh, of the person who wrote the song, who didn't want any violence associated with the song. And I couldn't lie to them and say, well, it's not that violent. I mean, she's got an ax and she's covered in blood and she's trying to cut this guy's leg off at a certain point, And she ends up getting thrown in the ocean attached to an anchor. So I'm not going <laughs> to lie to this, these people in France and say, it's not that bad because it'll come back to haunt you every time. So, you know, so different solutions are always, more exciting you know like I, I it's not like throwing in the towel it's it's pivoting and and making something even better out of adversity 
Yeah. How would you say the music industry has changed for better or worse? And where do you see it going? Better. I mean, it fucking sucks to be a touring musician right about now, but um, by and large, I see it as better. And that is specifically because um, it has been that there is, you know, uh, it was very difficult for um, average musicians who don't, who aren't superstars to get a label deal and to get like a bunch of advances and then have a big tour and all that kind of stuff. And with the internet, it's made it a lot easier to access fans, get your music heard if you're very good and you actually know how to market yourself. Um, and you know, with things like, you know, getting sync licenses or other avenues to make money, even, you know, merch and all that kind of stuff. It's much easier for someone to make a sustainable living as a musician than it was. I think that most musicians, unless they were, you know, really, you know, bigger uh, rock stars and stuff would always have to have a second job. But I think that if, if a musician is smart and can, you know, be satisfied with, you know, a bunch of singles, I mean, not meaning I'm talking about the baseball analogy, um, you know, having a sustainable income for something, um, doing it now is, is more attainable for a lot more people, um, than it was back in the day. Um, you know, I think that there's always going to be some qualitative stuff problems with when you have to appeal to as many people as you do. But I think that there's so many niches now that a lot of musicians can be moderately successful in their niche and um, keep doing what they want to do without having to compromise than, than it used to be. So, yeah, I think it's positive. I mean, there's a lot more people who are listening to music on film and television games and all that kind of stuff in those, you know, ways to, you know, uh, exploit your music that were never even contemplated before. Absolutely. Tell us more about working with Tyler. What's that like? What's he like? It sounds, I mean, he seems like just a force of nature. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's in a nutshell, he's, he's, you know, somebody who came up um, through, you know, sheer force of will, no advantages whatsoever, you know, just really believed in himself and his ability to tell stories was told no so many times um, that he figured out how he could do it without doing it other people's ways. And so the lesson he, he took from that, in fact, taught me is that, you know, you, if you feel something is correct and your way of doing business is better other people is you just do it. And if people really want to work with you, they'll, you know, support you and figure out a way to make it happen. So, and that's what he's always done. He's very much like somebody who knows in his gut what he wants. He's the most decisive person I've ever worked with creatively. Um, It's like, you know, somebody where he can hear something and be like, no, that's not it. And I'd be like, what about this? And he's like, yeah, that's the one. And I'm like, are you sure? He's like, yes. Okay. Next question. Wow. He's like, that's okay. awesome. but yeah, but he, I get a lot of no's less and less, but I used to get a lot of no's and then I have to, you know, yeah, I didn't get, I don't get a lot of time sometimes cause he's so busy that when I do have a moment where I can kind of like say, okay, this is, we have to make some decision. I have to be a hundred percent ready. Every song I play him has to already be cleared because the last thing I can possibly do is, is play him something and he loves it and then go back and have, and say, Hey Tyler, sorry, there were some problems. He'd be like, well, why did you play it for me? Right. Right. Yeah. So important to have all your, all your paperwork in place and have everything ready to go with your co-writers so that it's one stop and 
when you're pitching to supervisors like Joel, he knows he can trust you. You can tell him I have this stuff in order or your rep can tell them it's all good to go. It's pre-cleared. And then he knows when he pitches it, there's nothing to worry about. How about Rob Zombie? I mean, he's, he's for musician first, so he's got to be opinionated. Actually, he, right? he was a musician first. At least that's how he became known. But he is so savvy. So um, knows every aspect of, of filmmaking it was funny. The, the first time I, I, I was at Lionsgate as the head of music, when I first started working on House of a Thousand Corpses yeah. and um and I was kind of expecting the first time I, I I met him for him to be kind of like his his persona and be this kind of, you know, like, you know, hairy, just blood covered, just, you know, monster rocker kind of dude. And we were on a, a phone call, it was a post-production call where we were discussing all sorts of technical aspects. And there was um, somebody who was very calmly kind of leading everybody through it. And I thought it was the post supervisor who was talking about all the very kind of detailed um, technical stuff about post-production, like what format they want to mix in and all that kind of stuff. And then I was on the, on the speakerphone and I was like, who's that talking? And they were like, that's Rob. And so he's kind of the, the guy who, you know, he definitely has that, uh, that game face of, of, you know, the bloody Terry, you know, monster of rock kind of a guy, but he's like super like smart, even keeled, just, you know, very talented uh, filmmaker. And he loves making movies more than he likes making music even. So, you know, he's a fan of all those those slasher movies and stuff. So all of his stuff is is based on that. But uh, yeah, he's, he was great to work with. He, you know, we did, uh, oh, which one was it? Uh, um, Devil's Rejects. Yeah. And uh, that, you know, we didn't have a huge budget, but he was like, I want it to be all these huge classic rock anthems and we can make it happen and it was you know very lucky because he was rob zombie and he could call the label and say hey i know i've got a, an album coming out with you soon don't i this <laughs> was like yes you do he'd be like hey i'd love it if you gave us some uh, some good rates on some of these recordings and they were like okie dokie wow yeah so he's yeah he's no dummy uh, all right. Well, let's switch gears. That's that's just awesome. Thanks for sharing all that with us. Um, let's sh- switch gears and talk about the Guild of Music Supervisors and how our listeners can get involved with the Guild. Yeah. So um, I started with the Guild back in before 2010 when it was just kind of a, a twinkling Maureen Crow's eye. Um, back when uh, we were all kind of, we would just get together at like the cat and fiddle and just, you know, hope uh, a label person was there to throw down a credit card to buy everybody drinks. And we would get together and, and complain about the same things. And so we started, you know, uh, getting together and, and uh, one of the first uh, complaints that we had, or one of the first issues we had was that music supervisors, you know, this is, you know, before 2010, we still um, were, we were a huge and growing kind of group. Like USC was starting to do the classes on teaching people how to become a music supervisor. And it was a big industry, but it wasn't being recognized as a craft or any force in the music industry or in the, you know, film and television community. And part of the problems that we saw was that the, the Grammy organization the recording academy wouldn't even allow us to become members, voting members as music no. supervisors. Um, because they were like, well, you're not really producing anything. You're not working on the album. We're, we're, we're a recording academy, you know? And we're like, what about these soundtrack albums that are selling millions and millions of copies that we put together? And they were like, well, 
you know, the, the producer on the film is taking producer on the record credit and that's who we can let into it. But we're like, we put it together. And so we actually got together and, and uh, had a big uh, um, meeting at, with Neil Portnow and, and some of the board at the, at the recording Academy with some of the top music supervisors in attendance. And we're like, uh, dude, look at us. We each spend, you know, upwards of a million dollars on recorded music every year. And the fact that we can't be a part of the recording Academy is, is a fucking huge oversight. And so within a month they changed the rule and we were then allowed to become voting members, full voting members and eligible for Grammys, you know, for soundtracks. And then we saw set our sights on the television Academy and we're like, you know, look at this, the history of television, this, in this new platinum age of TV and, one of the great things that's going into it isn't just the writing and the acting, but also the level of uh, music, the, the, the sophistication and the kind of, you know, uh, cutting edge use of music to help tell stories. And the fact that you don't have, we can't even be members. We were specifically banned from being part of the music branch. So even if we had like hundreds and hundreds of hours of, of television under our belt, we could only come in as, as at large members because the right. music branch specifically did not want music supervisors in part of it. So we lobbied and sat down with everybody. And finally they were like, yeah, you know what? You should. And so now we've had, you know, we're going on our fifth year of, of uh, Emmys in music supervision and we can all become voting members. And, you know, next up is we're, we're working on the, the film Academy to the same kind of stuff, but those are our kind of, you know, nice recognitions and uh you know accolades for our people and showing that people appreciate the craft of what we do but you know uh, i took over in as president in october and that was obviously you know right before everything went to shit in in march but um we had our our big guild awards that uh, that uh, madonna is the vice president and i were, were hosting that year with the bird Bacharach, and it was at the will turn and it had you know 1600 people at it and it was like all of the people all of the heads of music for for all the studios networks and games we're like you know what this is the center of the the international sync community that that what we do you know employs tons and tons of people and what we do is makes a difference in the storytelling and so we've made a concerted effort to really kind of push the envelope to uh, let people know that being a part of, of the Guild of Music Supervisors, it means being part of the whole sync community and the greater kind of, uh, what do I want to say? I don't want to say community too many times, but that's really what it is. It's always been, you know, like a, a group of people who get together over drinks and go see bands and stuff is how we started off or music fans. Right. But it's turned into a group of people who are advocating for the craft of music supervision, who are, you know, fighting for the, um, fees that they keep wanting to push down and down and down for licensing, you know, the, the, um, the amount of syncs that go on in, during a year <laughs> keeps growing and growing because of so much more product being made yeah. and trying to spread the dollars even thinner. So it's, you know, trying to keep fighting for the value of music and media and we're kind of leading the charge that. So we're doing, actually, we're in the middle of our, of our big membership kind of fundraising campaign that we just started on Friday um, leading up to our, our um, annual um, conference, which is going to be February 19th and 20th 
um, and it's free to anybody who's a, a, a member or a friend of the guild. And we've been doing all these panels for the last, you know, nine months um, under the lockdown quarantine. So those have all been free and open to people. And we're appealing to all the people who've attended to those to sign up as a friend of the guild or as, you know, even an associate member if you're aspiring to become a full music supervisor. And because we're, we're looking at, at a ways of sustaining this organization, it's a nonprofit, it's all volunteer led, and it takes a lot of fucking effort to, to do all yeah. of this stuff. And, and we're all, like I said, volunteers. And having more people participate makes it a lot easier because, you know, it's a, it, we've, we've organized, and Madonna and I came in a little bit reluctantly because we knew how much work it was going to be. Right. But um, we've kind of really pushed and, and, and decentralized a lot of the control from our board to committees who are now kind of autonomously kind of like, you know, acting on different parts of the industry and different concerns, everything from diversity to benefits, to uh, membership, to, um, you know, social outreach, to all sorts of have, have different committees that are, are working on these things. We're also doing a lot more geographic kind of based ones. You've got a, a GMS East committee that is all New York from like, you know, New York down to Georgia yeah. based supervisors. And uh, we're trying to give a lot more power to uh, some of the communities who are in Los Angeles, you know, and I know that you're a big proponent of, uh, of uh, trying to make sure that, you know, people who aren't just in, in this, you know, 10 mile radius of Los Angeles have a voice in this too. So. Yeah. And growing up elsewhere and then moving here almost 15 years ago now, but you know, there's a whole world out there and there's people that can't, won't ever move here, won't ever get access. So uh, yeah, I think which it's is, important. Which is now, especially now, I mean, every, I, I could be on the moon and doing what I do at this point. So yeah. it's, it's like, you know, understanding that, you know, that people who are doing this can still do this at a high level, you know, telling stories with music, but from, you know, wherever. So we're, we're reaching out to, you know, Scandinavia to start a guild there. We've got one in the UK, awesome. we've got Canada, that we started a few years ago and they're looking to kind of ramp up and, and uh, um, be a little bit more autonomous. Um, we're looking at South America and Japan and, and trying to help build the craft of music supervising in these areas um, yeah. because we see the advantage to, you know, not only to, to us and saying like, you know, what you're doing is music supervision and you have to kind of stand up and claim it, but because it makes uh lives a lot easier for labels, publishers, and independent musicians if there is somebody at the helm kind of steering the creative and business side of the music. Yeah. Thank you for all you do for the for supervisors. I just want to say that and what you you and you and Madonna, that that all that is fantastic. Mostly me. Mostly me. <laughs> if someone wants to become a friend of the guild, what's the process like and uh, what do they get with that? Uh, Friend of the Guild is super easy. That is a, a subscription thing. It is it's for somebody who wants to be plugged into the into the whole scene. Um, you can just go onto our website, which is guildofmusicsupervisors.com, and I think go to the membership section, and you can sign up as a friend of the guild. Um, I think it's a uh, hundred dollars a year, and with that, you get the conference, you get all the newsletters, you get to be part of all the panels and everything like that, and also the awards that are coming up in April. Um, we're still working out what, uh, how we're doing those, but we've got uh, Quincy Jones is our honoree this year. 
Um, and we're building really a, an amazing virtual program that we're going to have for that. But if you go to that and sign up as, you know, for a friend of the guild, it's, it's super easy just to, you know, sign up and you're in, um, and you're participating in the community. If you want to aspire to full membership, I've made it even harder, I think, to become a member, um, intentionally because I want, um, people who are full members or, you know, uh, associate members or corporate, we have different levels. I want it to have meaning. Yeah. You know, a studio says, you know, well, are they a member of the guild? It actually means something. And, you know, sometimes, you know, they're not, uh, you know, don't have enough credits that they can, we're, we're working on actually, you know, top secret, as I say over the Zoom, <laughs> but we're working on, you know, doing accreditation of uh, the GMS after somebody's credit and the main titles. We're working with the DGA to approve that kind of stuff because if somebody can, you know, say that they've got GMS after their name, it actually has a real meaning to it. And, uh, you know, we're trying to make it more difficult for people to get music supervisor credit because we feel like it's it's given out too liberally in a lot of cases. Yeah. Really kind of do an education both on the um, supervisor side, but also on filmmakers side about what it means to get that credit. I'm sure everyone wants to know what type of music are you looking for right now? And if they wanted to get it to you, what would that process look like? What do you recommend? Uh, sure. I mean, I'm going to be looking at a lot of vintage recordings uh, from uh, 1947 and earlier. So I don't know if any of y'all have any of that kind of stuff, but I'm working on a period movie that's, that's coming up. That's going to be very music intensive. I'm also working on um, seven Tyler Perry uh, television series um, wow. that generally are looking for uh, pop, hip hop, R and B, soul, gospel, depending on the show. Uh, I just finished a couple of big video games, but I'm going to be starting on a, uh, two documentaries. One is the New Orleans one I told you about. I'm not really looking for music for that one, or necessarily documentaries are a little tough because you know obviously that one is is about New Orleans music and and it's mostly like live. Uh, footage and the other one is is about the doc about doc and it's documentary about um west coast hip-hop again so yeah that one is if you are a hip-hop artist who made music in the early to late 80s then uh, you're my person (laughs) on the west coast how should they get that to you uh, I leave that to you to figure out. So if you really are working at it, you, my email is not hard to find. So you can send it to me, do what I was talking about, do your research. I've told you some of the stuff I'm working on. Um, yeah. You can look at the television series, you know, send me an email. Don't send me files, send me a link. And uh, you can hit me up that way. Nine times out of a 10 or 99 times out of a hundred, I might be just deleting you. In fact, look at this. This is something somebody gave me for Christmas. I don't know if you can see what it says. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> delete, delete, delete. It's right. a, yeah, it's a cross stitch of that. So. And if you don't have anything right, guys, like you, you know, don't pitch. It's not, it's not worth reaching out just to say, hey, I have something that's right for this and then it's wrong. That actually can kill your chances right. of I mean, joy. There's a lot of times where, yeah, people are, you know, once bitten, twice shy when they listen to to some stuff. And if it's if it's garbage, then you're the garbage uh, music maker forever. Or if there's problems with the deal, then you're the problem, you know, musician forever. And right. we all talk to each other. So that delete, delete, delete needs to be your like uh, 
you know, social icon there. That's yeah. the perfect size for your face. I, I don't want to like crush dreams too much, but uh, oh. you know, if, if, if just seeing a cross stitch of delete, delete, delete crushes a dream, you probably shouldn't be in this business anyway. That's right. If that's all it takes. All right. Let's open it up for some Q and a Joel. Thanks so much. This has yeah. been awesome. Um, guys, we're going to take maybe like five questions max. So, uh, all right, here's one from Kimberly. Are you looking for songs that were recorded in the forties or just in that style? Um, actually we're, we're being pretty uh, stringent about, um, about, uh, being authentic. So it's, it's, uh, taking, yeah, it's taking music that was, you know, recordings from that era. We may go and find, um, some of the songs written in that era and re-record them, but it'll probably be with the actors around. There's a lot of on cameras in this. So we, we want to be authentic as possible. Yeah. Joel, what's if one thing someone you wish would have told you when you were starting out, what would that be? That whole, if you could talk to your younger self, what would you oh, tell Oh, I you? know. Uh, publishing. That's the one. Publishing <laughs> is forever. So right. do everything you can to um, secure your publishing rights, register everything, make sure that you try and protect, you know, your writing and your publishing and track down there. Um, whatever you can. So, you know, that's, you know, in this business where so much is ephemeral and the value of a license is whatever you can negotiate. There's a lot of people who made a lot of money just <clears throat> making sure their music was in the right place and taking care of their business and making sure everything's registered and that they are registered with their performing rights societies and uh, holding on to it because it builds and builds and builds. And then you've got, you know, a, a regular mailbox money coming in and, and you can go and retire to your house. I don't know. That's right. That's right. Oh, we've got some questions rolling in. Um, where is a good place to eat in New Orleans is one of them. <laughs> Everywhere. Yeah. I don't know. How many songs is best for a cold pitch? One or more? Uh, more generally, if you've got them, you know, don't pitch garbage like we were saying, but uh, more, if I'm going to be listening to a, if I, if I go onto a, uh, um, like a disco link or some other thing like that, and there's one song in there, I'm like, that's fucking ballsy, but you know, yeah. maybe they, maybe they got it. And I, I love personally doing the one song pitch for people and I'd be like, this yeah. is the song, listen to that. Don't listen to anything else. Yeah, and if, it, if it if I'm wrong, then it really fucking blows up in my face. But I think that's good if you have the if you have the relationship in place. That's good to do. You know, hey, instead of sending you five or ten this time, just check out this one. But I'm a fan of three to five. You know, give them some options, and then Joel, if you want to hear more, you'll reach out. Right? Yeah. I'm like, good. I'm like, do you have more like this, but like in a faster tempo, or do you have anything in a in a minor? Because this, I need something that's that's kind of a, a little bit more somber kind of sound well you know like that if the, if i see potential I'll, I'll keep pursuing it something out there because i've been a lot of negative shit for for everybody like it's really fucking hard but there's a couple of people who were you know pursuing me and were respectfully pursuing me saying look i'm a big fan of what you do so you know i like to hear that but um and then i said okay you know what if you want to fucking try something i've got a main title on a movie and i'm looking for people to try it i've already got some ideas but if you want to take a shot do it and I've had several times where somebody's taken a stab at something and I'm like, oh shit, this is really good. And I've used it for like a main title. I've used it for, for big placements. I've had people do some songs for me for, for things. And I've had like, you know, huge artists who are writing for, for things, but then somebody will come out of left field and, and surprise me. And I'm a hundred percent ready to, to, uh, to do that. And those kind of people I keep going back to. So. 
Yeah, and that goes back to uh, one of Joel's earlier earlier comments. Um, make sure the product's great. Yeah, that's the first one. That's the first thing. Because if it's crap, don't even start. Thanks, Joel. Thanks a lot for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. I appreciate you, Joey. So anyway, happy new year, you guys. Sign up as a Guild of Music Supervisor, friend of the Guild. Sign up and look for our, our conference that's coming up on uh, February 19th and 20th. And hopefully I'll be seeing you guys there. And I'm easy to find. Look me up. Say that you know Jody. It'll help. I'm pointing to him on my screen. I'll put him. Yeah. Thanks, Joel. We appreciate it. Bye, y'all. Take care. If you like what you're here, if you're listening on Apple Music or Spotify, whatever it might be, please leave us a review. That helps us out a ton. Join our Facebook group at License Your Music with Jody Friedman, our Instagram at License Your Music, and of course, our YouTube channel, where you'll find all sorts of valuable tips, product reviews, and other things about music licensing. Thanks so much for listening. Stay cool. Peace. Peace.